Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. This is my third Dharma talk, and I'm going to be talking about oneness, dependent co-arising, and karma. Uh, excuse my recourse to notes for this only my <laughs> third occasion doing this. And uh, please make yourselves comfortable. It's going to take me a couple of minutes, a little more than that. So big topics. I got the idea for uh, oneness just after my second Dharma talk when my friend Rachel was here. And she's only been to the temple a few times and I was very pleased to see her. I had invited her. And uh, to see her on that day was a great coincidence for me. And we went out together afterwards. We walked out of the temple and down the street, stopped into the Starbucks. And we're going to pick up a couple of coffees. Neither of us had time to chat. She was going to a meeting. I was also coming back here to a meeting, and we were both very tired. So the coffees were just picking up. And she paid for mine. I, I, I was very grateful. <laughs> and, and I thought, though, if oneness was really a thing, would it matter if she or I paid? And in fact, would it matter if we had two cups of coffee, because couldn't one of us take a sip of coffee and we'd both be a lot you know, more wakeful? Uh, and so I said, Rachel, I'll get the next one. Thank you very much. Uh, the next time's on me. And thanks very much for making me think of something I can learn about, because there's something about oneness I definitely don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. So I started looking into it, and I immediately went to... Uh, a scholar and translator who I really like, Thanissero Bhikkhu. He's an abbot of a monastery in Northern California, and he's a very prolific writer and teacher. And he, uh, he has an article called We Are Not One in Tricycle, the Buddhist periodical in spring. And I will now basically plagiarize that. You're dictated to. And I recommend you take a look at it. It's very interesting. The story he recounts is from the uh, Samayata uh, Nikaya Sutra, which is a parable where uh, a Brahmin cosmologist comes to the Buddha and asks him point blank, says, is everything a oneness or is everything a plurality? And the Buddha's answer is that both views are extremes to be avoided. And okay, so maybe that's typical. When the Buddha's given an either-or situation, tends to go for the middle path. But still, I mean, what's not to like about oneness? I mean, why not, why not just say, okay, oneness is, 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 is the better view. And the, uh, the sutra doesn't uh, recount how the Buddha offered any reason why oneness in this situation isn't the better view. But it, um, it still leaves the question open, I think. And, and so I was pleased that, that Thanissaro Bhikkhu looked in other sutras for places where the Buddha talks about oneness and explains, offers some explanation of what's wrong with it. For example, in the Anguttara Nikaya, he talks about the highest state of meditation's consciousness, the highest state of awareness, and it's 
full of the feeling of oneness. Uh, uh, and, and this high level of consciousness, which is, you know, the, you know, the Buddha was a master meditator, still the Buddha said it has change in it. It's not a constant fixed state. And with change, there's always suffering. Now, the Buddha's highest priority wasn't to explore consciousness, was to reduce <coughs> and bring about the cessation of suffering. So he said, if in the highest state of meditative, fullest consciousness and awareness, you're still suffering, then it's a conditioned state. It's a, uh, it's a state you've got to let go of. You have to abandon that state in order to be free of suffering. Second place, back in the Samyutta Nikaya, is, is where the Buddha talks about the very key central doctrine of non-self. Now, realizing non-self, that everything we feel and everything we see out there is other than self and separate from self, is the key to awakening in the Buddhist teaching. You repeat these words, this does not belong to me, this is not who I am, this is not me. And if you are one with everything, you'll be blocking this understanding. And you'll be therefore resisting awakening. That's the second reason why the Buddha said that oneness isn't working. The third is in the Majima Nakaya. And here, this one, he, he goes so far as to say it's foolish to talk about oneness. To think you're identical with the cosmos. Because if you were identical with the cosmos, wouldn't you have some control or some influence over the outcomes? When in fact, you can't even control your immediate surroundings outside or inside. You walk down the street, you might step in with the dog left behind. We have no control over that. You can't even say, okay, what are my next 10 thoughts going to be and I'm going to think them. Just try it. <laughs> it's not going to work for you, right? <laughs> you can't control what's inside, let alone what's outside. And so, uh, you know, oneness does, does not jive with reality. So he's got three places in the sutras. One, where he said, even in the highest state of consciousness, you're still suffering with oneness. And, and two, it in fact, it blocks your uh, ability to be awakened because you don't see the distinction between what's self and non-self. And three, it, it doesn't jive with reality at all anyway. So oneness is, is really not not true. I'm a little confused, a little unhappy about this, because this is different from what I expected. And it got worse when uh, it was recounted from the Kutapataka. Now, this is a very short sutra, which is kind of like a primer for probably beginning monks. And so, since a lot of the Buddhist teachings are numerical in nature, it kind of presents a word association or memory aid for people trying to, you know, memorize teaching and doctrinal points. For example, uh, it starts with like, what is, for example, four? And the answer is, what is four? Noble noble truth. The four noble truths. <coughs> so it's, it's easy to remember that. What is eight? If you know the four noble truths, what is eight? The eightfold path. The eightfold path. What is five? Skandhas. The five skandhas. What is seven? Seven factors of enlightenment. Okay, I'll read them. Mindfulness, curiosity, those are the two I can remember, but I still looked. 
Energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Seven factors of awakening or enlightenment. And what is one? Well, I was sure. I, I would have said this would be something related to oneness. Not right. The Buddha's answer was quite shocking to me. It was, one is all beings subsist on food. I mean, I would have bet the farm on associating one with oneness. All beings, one body, that sort of thing. It, 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 this all beings eat has kind of unsavory implications, I think. A world of inter-eating, and he says not only physically, but also mentally. I mean, I'm way down here, I'm sitting on the, on the subway, and there's a poster, and, you know, on one half of the poster, there's a kitten, and then the other half is a baby chicken, and it's a pro-vegan poster. You know, why is one a pet, and one food, and, and it talks about how, you know, an intelligent, personable, and, and nice uh, chickens are, and how horribly we treat them in the, by the billion. And, uh, okay, you know, um, this doesn't make me very comfortable. I mean, I'm culpable. This is the way it is, though. The, uh, the fact is that all beings subsist on food. We eat each other. So there's no cause for celebration here. And, uh, and, and the Buddha didn't really tell the Brahmin why to avoid oneness in the Samyutta Sutra, but he, at least not you know, in that conversation. But he did offer some advice on how to steer back towards the middle path. And he, he offered a central teaching here, the teaching of interdependence, or sometimes called dependent co-arising, the chain of dependent co-arising. And it goes like this. This is just exactly how the Buddha told it to the Brahmin in the sutra. Avoiding these two extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle, from ignorance as a requisite condition come fabrications. From fabrications as a requisite condition comes consciousness. From consciousness as a requisite condition comes name and form. From name and form as a requisite condition come the six sense media. From the six sense media as a requisite condition comes contact. From contact as a requisite condition comes feeling. From feeling as a requisite condition comes craving. From craving as a requisite condition comes clinging sustenance. From clinging sustenance as a requisite condition comes becoming. From becoming as a requisite condition comes birth. And from birth as a requisite condition then aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair come into play. Such is the origination of this entire mass of stress and suffering. I used to think that this was the Buddha's way of defining oneness, this interdependence, showing how things inter-are, inter-be. But uh, according again to Thanissaro's analysis, and I agree after reflection on this, I was wrong on two counts. First one being that connected does not mean identical. Being dependent on conditions is not the same as entirely the same as something. Uh, if you're the same as something, you're totally aligned in your goals. Right? You have a common goal. Identical things are, 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 are aligned together. And we're not. We're, we're individuals and we don't have the same agenda. 
And if we were truly one, we would predictably all have the same agenda, the same goals. And the other thing which is interesting, I think, is that I had failed to distinguish between outer reality and inner experience. The chain of dependent co-arising is about how a person's awareness works. It's not a model of reality. Buddha was interested in our experience, the phenomenologist. He wasn't interested in making a philosophical paradigm of the truth of reality. He was talking about reducing suffering. And so this model is about interior interconnectedness, the inner world. And actually, it's about uh, what makes us not one, because you can't know how that chain is working inside me. Uh, the color orange out in the trees today or in here beautifully is not the same experience for me as it is for you, as far as I can tell. I, I, I don't know how you feel about it. And you don't know how I feel about it, unless maybe you ask me and, and listen to me. And that's the key thing. I mean, I can work inside myself with dependent co-arising and teach myself, therefore, to deal with this entire mass of stress and suffering. But no one else can work it on me and free me from suffering. It's my unskillfulness in these interconnections that's causing my suffering. And learning to be so skillful, I can get out of it. And that's good. I mean, that, that, that's, that, that's compassionate. But still this abandoning oneness feels pretty bleak to me. I feel sometimes like I'm, I'm sitting on the middle of the 401 and these trucks are bearing down on me, old age, disease and death. They got heavy loads. Since I quit living in the temple, I, I, I got married, you know, and I became a householder, as I am now. And so I've been watching a lot of TV. First time, uh, and Netflix, right? And, and it's, it's, what did I do to benefit from the extra hour of sleep last night? Well, I didn't sleep, you know. I just watched another episode. <laughs> I can't help it, you know. Uh, uh, and and uh, in my house, there's, there's there's an American soap opera called uh, uh, Grey's Anatomy, and it's pretty good, you know. It's actually it's actually very good. And in, in American TV, there's a lot of religion. You know, and and I, I feel envious sometimes uh, about the peaceful comfort it brings the believers. I feel this way about oneness sometimes. It, it's you know you, you got in the show it's a hospital show, and so you know you've got somebody they're going to go for an operation, and, and maybe they're not going to make it. Maybe they're an old an old person who has you know that the spouse. Uh, loving partner of many decades has already passed away and so the risk of death is mitigated by the feeling that they're going to see that person in hell. It's, a, it's, it, it's like a lofty pure down comforter around me on the highway, a satin pillowcase to put my head on. Trouble is for me I still see those big trucks rolling in you know and I'm still sitting in the same place so it's not working for me. The Buddha's teaching on karma was his compassionate response to this situation. Karma is related to dependent co-arising, but whereas dependent co-arising is an inner experience, karma has both an inner and outer aspect. Intentions, the inner aspect, are very significant karma. Right? Our, our intentions are highly important. But in case you haven't noticed, other people don't necessarily get our intentions. In fact, I find this distressing regularity. People are just playing wrong about what's going on in my head. Uh, I find this very frustrating. 
thank goodness for the outer aspect of karma, which is how my intentions ripple out into the world through my actions. Because with this, I have some hope of connecting and having real relationships. The Buddha taught that we're related not by what we inherently are, but what by we choose to do. And that's good. I mean, it's not a still the great comfort and escape I was looking for, because people do terrible things to each other. Sometimes our eating takes a priority over our inclination to be good, to follow the precepts. And we're often just really hungry. And the world of inter-eating individuals can be extremely cruel and destructive. A teaching that, that's based on oneness prophesizes a much safer world than, than one of interconnection through actions. If you truly believe in oneness, you can even rest in the confidence that your feelings can be trusted and that following your intuitions, your instincts will make everything okay. Don't try this at home. <laughs> and back on the highway, uh, there's a, with this belief, a, a kind of a, a teddy bear, a, a present. You know, if I just really relax and get in touch with my inner goodness, I'm bound to do the right thing. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And never mind that they may have entirely different needs and tastes. But the teaching of connectedness through karma and through our actions is actually the, the, the more compassionate possibility. It's, it's actually the, the much more compassionate because of freedom of choice. If things were really all oneness, you'd have no more choice than your stomach or your liver have. I mean, you have an organic oneness inside your body, but there's no freedom in that in here. Uh, the organs have no independent claim on their activities. They can only do what they're told to do, usually by the brain or the immune system, the impulses from somewhere else. And that's organic oneness for you. And for the Buddha, there were no useful teaching that contradicts freedom of choice. Right? He taught that we are individuals, we need to develop our own skills, that we have choices to make along the path to release ourselves from suffering. Suffering that we cause with our bad habits of deed and thought and the lack of the right skills. And so, bearing this in mind, the, the common misunderstanding that karma is fatalistic and all about what's already happened is, is so wrong. Uh, karma is about what you can do right now to create durable well-being and happiness into the future for yourselves and for the world around you, for us. Uh, dealing with the current situation, if karma was about being stuck, the Buddha wouldn't have bothered with being a teacher in the first place. That's why he opposed the caste system. Uh, it was justified a kind of a rear view karma that the, the Brahmins believed in in India 2,500 years ago. People still believe it. Uh, oneness, this idea of a, a world of inter-eating, it, it falsely leaves you no way out. You're just your role. <coughs> but karma and codependent arising, it starts with how you feel and it goes on to what you can do. And that's the Buddha's definition of the self. It's an ongoing process. And the Eightfold Path is the way forward to a better place, inside and outside. And we don't necessarily need to eat and be eaten all the time. It's not always feeding time. On the surface, oneness seems to offer the, the great incentive to compassionate action. Because why would you hurt anything else if you realized it was also you? You cut off an arm, it's your arm. But when you regard the Buddha's teaching and see that oneness precludes choice and it doesn't square with reality,
then you see that's really no help to think that way. His teaching of karma, on the other hand, makes compassion very practical, even if very difficult, because you can recognize that your actions matter every day and you can align what you choose to do with the precepts and with your higher values, if you pay attention. Naturally, in this uh, realization, there's a tendency to prioritize mustering your intentions and practices towards your personal awakening. And lots of people criticize Buddhism for this, uh, this emphasis, feeling it devalues others and the environment. But not really, as Tanisero says, nobody's ever fracked his way to nirvana. <laughs> Altruism goes hand in hand with the meditative skills of concentration, discernment, and mindfulness. You can't transcend the inter-eating world by abusing it. In fact, the greedy you are, the more it sucks you in. Treating others and the world well is the true path to freedom. With mindfulness, concentration, and discernment, you develop your own inner sources of nourishment. You detach your appetites from the feeding frenzy around us and show others that it's possible by example. Taking care of your inner business is a very compassionate practice for the outside world. Lots of people can't cope. An elderly relative at the end of their life, a crying baby who can't tell you what hurts, and not just people, a sick pet can break your heart. When my mother was dying, she'd been losing her mind for several years. I was visiting her every day. I, I, uh, this was the nursing home across from the old temple. Uh, I used to go over after the evening services and we'd watch a bit of TV. And uh, towards the end of this, uh, she didn't recognize me and she was suffering terribly. She was, she was really in a bad state for a long time. And I couldn't take even a smidgen of that suffering on myself and give her some relief because of that. And that was all the proof I need, that, that we really are not one. Leonard Cohen's new album, I think it's called I Like It Dark, <laughs> uh, it ends with a poem, and uh, I, I haven't heard the whole album yet, but I was in yoga class, and they laid down Shavasana at the end, corpse pose. And um, <laughs> there's a string section, and then Leonard Cohen's unmistakable voice. I wish there was a treaty I could sign because it's over now, the water and the wine. We were broken then and now we're borderline. I wish there was a treaty. I wish there was a treaty between your love and mine. <laughs> There's a chasm between us. We're connected for sure, but taking care of myself, it means that when I'm helpless, when I'm sick and dying, and my loved ones want to help me out, help me by doing some of that heavy lifting, maybe I can let them, and more importantly, maybe because of the practice, I won't have to put any extra burden on their hearts, and that's no small thing, to be able to offer the gift of our own peace of mind to the people we love and who love us. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for your, your presence and your, your wonderful listeners. <laughs> thank you very much.